Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I'm excited because I have the pleasure of having David Siegel, who's the CEO of Meetup and the author of Decide and Conquer. This is a book that is super, I'm super excited to talk to David about. This is a, a great chance for him to share a little bit about in terms of his experience with leading Meetup. I would tell you more, but I think David's the perfect person to talk about this story, as well as how his own experience uh, in education, and particularly at his time in Wharton, also was a great launching pad for him in his career. So David, first off, thanks so much for being here today, for being on the show. I always love starting with a warm-up question, and my warm-up question for you is, I would love to know from you, what's a favorite memory you have from when you were growing up? You know, what what's something that you can kind of think back and look back upon that was a really awesome or formative experience from when you were a child. Okay. So I would say there's my first memory of my life. I actually read was, was when I turned four years old. It's my first memory. I remember sitting on the stairs of our apartment and, and it was a birthday party for me and my parents and, and they were a part of the birthday party. We opened up all these gifts of like the kids got me gifts and then I opened up the gifts. I opened up a gift and I remember saying to the kid who bought me something, was like, oh, I already have that. And the kid looked a little bit dismayed. And my parents pulled me aside, you know, nicely. And they said, David, it's not nice to tell people that you already have something because you made them feel bad. And I said, oh, okay. So that's literally the first memory I have in life. And I think it's like a great parenting moment and a great moment of like empathy and understanding like other people's perspectives. So that's what I'll start with. That is a great memory and what a great teaching moment. And kudos to your parents for using that as an opportunity to instill empathy at a, a young age and just having read your book and learned a little bit about you. Not to jump the gun here, but I can see that experience and uh, come to life and just in terms of some of the ways in which you interacted and engaged with people. At least that's what you wrote about or in some of the conversations I saw from reading through the book, which I would love to get into. So Let's talk a little bit about the book. So the book is called Decide and Conquer. And one of the first chapters in the, before getting into the meat of meetup, you, it talks a little bit about your first job after college. So tell me a little bit more. What was that experience like? And what was the most important lesson you learned in that experience? Okay. So graduated college and I was a major in philosophy, political science, and economics, which is, prepares you for absolutely nothing. And I heard about this thing called consulting in late nineties, like what's consulting? Oh, consulting is perfect for people that don't know anything. So I'm like, perfect. I don't know anything. I'm a great consultant. So I was like, I'm going to apply to consulting jobs. So I applied to all these consulting jobs and I actually ended up with five offers out of college, partially, largely because I had worked in an internship prior to graduating from college, which was really important in me being successful after I graduated. And I got offers from like big name places, Deloitte, and then later on for business school, BCG, all these places. But the thing I prioritized most for the job was getting maximal exposure 
to clients and to people to be able to build relationships. So many consultants like sit in the back and they write PowerPoint decks and they do Excel spreadsheets. And they don't actually talk to clients and meet with clients. So I worked for a company out of college called Brecker and Merriman, uh, a tiny 40 person boutique M&A, M&A consulting business. And, and I loved it because I got to go on client meetings all the time. I got to interact with CEOs of companies. I got to build relationships. And it was because of that job that I ended up getting my next job, which was to become, which was to meet with, because of relationships that I built with the CEO of DoubleClick, a guy named Kevin Ryan. That job helped to me to understand a couple of things. My first job out of college, what I don't want to do, which is like the most important thing, which is be a consultant. So that was like a really big awareness thing for me. And it also helped me to understand things that are important to me in jobs, like building relationships with people I could learn from, developing hard skills in PowerPoint or Excel or, or whatever those things happen to be. So I was a marketing and theology major in college, nice. which was an obvious candidate for being a consultant. And that was the path that I went down as well. So I, I totally can relate and understand. Curious though, because I think you were very prescient in wanting to prioritize an opportunity to get exposure to building relationships with people. What drove that? Because I was one of many people and have and counseled many people who are interested in going into consulting. A lot of times you, you hear about the opportunity for exposure, the ability to work on really interesting problems, the ability to work with large companies that are making an impact. But the, the people piece isn't always, isn't always top of mind. I don't think, I'm not saying people don't want to do it, but it, it's not necessarily always the thing that jumps out. Was there anything in particular that really helped you prioritize that element? Because that seems to me like a big component of what really drove transformation in that first role. Yeah, great call out, actually. Yes. So because I had worked in three or four different jobs prior to college, prior to my job that I took after college, I had seen working with people that I just thought were mailing it in people who were not ambitious, people who weren't nice. And then that was one job internship that I had. Another internship I had, people were just so friendly and so welcoming and so eager to teach me that I said, what differentiated one job from another was not the company that I was at. And it wasn't the mission of the company and it wasn't anything. It was just all came down to who I was actually working with and the culture of those organizations. And that's what I prioritize. I prioritize culture and people above everything because I knew that if I could fit in there and I could learn from the, from smart people, then good things will ultimately happen. I think that's a great way to prioritize. And it, it sounds like it really worked out. And I know you did that for a few years, but eventually you did go to business school and you got your MBA at Wharton. And in the book, you talked a little bit about this decision of whether or not to go to business school. And you got some advice from a mentor. Could you talk a little bit about that part of the book and maybe that interaction with that mentor, which helped really drive that decision for you? I love it. Okay. So I um, was four years out of school, four years out of college, and I had taken the GMATs when I was in college, actually, because I knew I would end up doing worse the longer I was away from school. And it was a five-year time horizon on the GMATs, and I did pretty well on them. So I was like, I'm not taking the GMATs again. So if I don't apply now, then I'm never going to go to business school. And I was debating between two opportunities. One would actually be moving into a sales position, getting a salary that was actually higher, the base and bonus, 
than the average salary of a Warden Business School graduate. So that's a pretty high salary. Or go two years and have zero income, essentially, even though my wife and I just had our first kid. So go basically from two salaries for two people to no salary for three people for two years. Doesn't that sound great? And I chose, and, and part of the reason for that was, as you said, the mentor. So I was lucky enough and I have been lucky enough to have many amazing mentors in my life and my career. And one of them at DoubleClick was someone named David Rosenblatt. And he was running a business and he had an MBA from Stanford. And he absolutely believed that the MBA isn't, it helps you with the relationships, but it also can really help you to understand business concepts, statistics and product and strategy and finance and marketing. Because I didn't really understand those things myself, he said, you will figure it out. Don't just take the short-term money, figure out how to build a career for yourself. Getting an MBA will help you to build that well-rounded career. And a school like Warden, which is a very good school to be able to go to for an MBA, you don't want to turn that down. And he was absolutely right. And it was one of the best decisions I made. And it was hard because I was giving up a tremendous amount of financial comfort. I took out maximal business, business school loans. My parents weren't paying for business school. And I'm still paying back my business school loans, by the way, 20 years later. I could pay it back earlier, but it's a 1% interest rate. So who's going to pay that back now? It was a great decision. I really love that story. And for it's funny, there are a lot of folks out there I talk to from time to time who go through that same decision as you did in terms of, I know I should take the GMAT because I'm in college and I'm in school, school mode and should just get out of the way. And then on the flip side of that, I oftentimes come running into people who are scrambling because they're trying to get their applications in because that, that test score is going to expire and they don't want to go through the process of having to go and sit and study and whatnot. So that was very pressing of you. And I do think uh, to the point that your mentor made, you know, because you had the ability to think longer term, really using the MBA as a thing that could facilitate opportunities down the road, which some of which you may not be able to see today, but some of which you knew were confident or, or confident in that if I put in the work and also certainly being able to go to a program that has a fairly strong track record, having the confidence to see that it would work out and certainly also, you know, having an ability to stomach loans and, and things like that. What I would love to know was, I know you wrote a little bit about this in the book, but you went through the experience. It sounds like you had a great time. But when it came time to recruiting for a job post business school, you took a pretty unique approach to doing that. And I always love great uh, in innovative recruiting stories outside of the norm. And I know some of my listeners out there are, are thinking about this as well. So could you share a little bit about your strategy for trying to land a post MBA job? I definitely took a atypical strategy. So basically, I had this vision in my head that the best opportunity for me were to be to learn from mentors and to learn from people way smarter, way more experienced than me. And the ideal job after business school, because I didn't want to go back to consulting, was to be an, an assistant to the CEO or a chief of staff type role. So what I did is I reached out and sent out a few thousand emails. I kid you not. I didn't know people's email addresses. So I did is I found some database of names of people, um, David Siegel, CEO of, of, of Meetup. I didn't know whether it's David.Siegel, David underscore Siegel, D Siegel. So 
I I sent an email to every permutation and combination. No, sorry. What I did was, I'll take that back. What, so what I then did is I went into Google. Actually, Google didn't exist back then. Probably went into like Excite or something like that. I went to Excite and I typed in like at meetup to find out whether it's D Siegel, D underscore Siegel, David Siegel, da, da, da. And it ended up sending out, doing like an Excel merge and sending out thousands of emails to every executive for every company that I was possibly interested in saying, I want to be assistant to the CEO. And what was great about that is like the head of facilities I sent it to and like, what the heck am I sending it to the head of facilities? I did that because then the head of facilities would say to me, oh, the person you should talk to is this person. And then when I sent a note to the person, I, I was a warm introduction, such and such told me that I should follow up with you. So I was able to do a warm thing rather than a cold type outreach. So I ended up getting these, all these emails out, I ended up having conversations with the CEO of JetBlue, David Nealman at the time, with David Stern, the commissioner of the National Basketball Association, Ken Chenault, who was the CEO of American Express at the time, emailed me back. Jim McCann, the CEO of 100 Flowers, and I had a conversation. So it was just this blitzkrieg of, of thousands of emails, high, high, high volume, that turned into an opportunity for me to kind of create my own job. And that's what I did. That's amazing. And I'm that list of people that actually responded is an impressive list. Were you surprised at all just at how many responses you actually got? Well, don't forget, I got, let's say, 15 or 20 responses out of like 3,000. So we're talking about a less than 1% hit rate. So really, the, the key strategy was just volume, 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 volume. And when you have high volume, there's a higher likelihood to get lucky. So I ended up, quote unquote, getting lucky and having these 15 kind of meetings and conversations, but it's only because it's just a conversion rate. And I ended up with a 1% conversion rate, which isn't amazing, but at that level it was. And also I put a very specific strategy to my email. It was not one of these long rambling emails that you get from people where you're like, I don't even have time to read any of this. Delete. It was, it was like a three line email with a subject line that just said chat question mark. And my general philosophy at the time, and still today, is your email should be as short as always showing up the preview pane for something that's cold because no one wants to read, read anything. So be as short as possible and just enough intrigue, you know, show a little leg, give enough intrigue so that they're willing to then have a follow-up conversation with you. And then what I did, sorry, at the end of my email is I said, can, can you forward this to your assistant to set up a time to chat? And then people just forward it to their assistants. And set up a time to chat. <laughs> the thing I love about that is is two things. Number one, you're short and to the point, which makes it a lot easier. And number two, you're very prescriptive on a next best action and an action that many of them were already used to already in terms of how many emails do they, they're, they're in their normal workflow of an executive. That is a very common thing that they would they would do. And what I what it speaks to, I think, is the amount of insight and empathy that you probably had back then around if I were to get this to work, I better make it work in a way that, that works for them. Right. If I said, can we meet? I would have gotten a much lesser response than please forward this to your assistant to set up a meeting. Right. Yes. Just that one line makes all the difference. Yes. Yes. And if I stand correctly, you mentioned one of the people that you were able to reach out to or meet was someone at 1-800-Flowers. And you ended up working there at some point. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So I had that conversation with him, Jim McCann, the founder of 1-800-Flowers, and and then the amazing thing, and then, and then he said, I'm not interested. Three years later, I'm into my job after business school, and there was a job posting on Warden's alumni database. 
and it said 1-800 flowers looking for an assistant and CEO. And I, and someone forwarded it to me. I wasn't looking for a job and, and, and I'm like, whoa. So I sent an email back to the CEO of 1-800 flowers and I said, Hey, I don't know if you remember this, but three years ago, I had a conversation about being an assistant and CEO. Well, if you, if that, if that in any way influenced your, your interest in looking for one, let's set up a time to chat. So he said, I was looking for you. So he posted it to try to find me because of the conversation we had was really great. And then he ended up working for one and a half hours after that for about four and a half years. I would be curious to know as a follow-up to that, which I think is incredible. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, it's just an example where things that you do early stage in business school, early in your career could have a benefit like five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later. You just don't know what's going to happen. Sorry, Al. No, I think that's a great point. And what I, I, I just to think about this for a second, you can't always predict the future, right? And also when you work on something in the short term and it doesn't pan out or it doesn't amount to anything, it's very easy to move on to the next thing. And I don't have an answer for this. I'm talking out loud here, but there's a lesson there, I think, and maybe you can ponder this for me for a second of, A, like when you have a conviction behind something or a, a strong belief behind something in terms of staying with it, but B, also just being able to navigate kind of the short and long game, right? In terms of not necessarily getting hung up on something that doesn't work out, while still also being able to, even if it if it comes back to you like a boomerang one day, being able to feel, to pick it back up where, where it left off. I'm not sure what the lesson is here for that, but I know there's something there. No, listen, the world works. It's it's not to get too down if you quote mm-hmm. fail. Yeah, yeah. Because the perception of failure is a short-term perception and you have no idea if that's actually the thing that set you, sets you up for the most success later on in life. And it's very easy to have the highs be too high and the lows be too low. And you, it, and it's really important to try to not get too emotionally invested in the exact outcome of what happens from your work, but instead to try to focus not on the outcome, but to focus on, did you, do you feel good about the effort that you expended? And if you do, be proud of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, one of the things I, I talk to people a lot about who are in job searches is the idea of process versus outcomes, right? And if you put together a good process and you feel confident that you're executing on, on the process that you did, in any given moment, the outcome may not exactly be what you wanted. But if you feel confident that you put together a good process, the outcome will come. And it's just the ability to hold space for when the outcome is not there. If you did the homework and focused on a good process, well, well eventually the, the, out, the outcome will come. Well said. You know, it's very hard for ambitious people like you, yes. your listeners, like myself, to reserve judgment. We're very judgy type people. It's very easy to judge. It's something that makes us successful. But the, the ability to reserve judgment is actually very, very important, frankly, for emotional health and, 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 and to not to lay blame and to you know, feel confident in the, in, the, in the process, like you said, and then to tweak the process if it's not working as well. Yeah. And, and speaking of, of process and outcomes, I, I would love to maybe lay this over just in terms of some of your journey with Meetup, right? And, and talk about just even, I don't know even where you want to start with this in terms of the process to, to taking the role, the process to working back and forth uh, with WeWork, or the process to going through the eventual break or spinoff, if you will. But I, I would assume, you know, just reading from the book, it really did feel like an emotional roller coaster. And I, I mean, take any of those examples, but walk me a little bit through just in terms of how you tried to 
navigate process versus outcomes in, in such a roller coaster of a journey. Yeah. Woo. Okay. So for those who don't know Meetup, Meetup is the world's largest platform for building and fi finding and building community. So we have 57 million people who join um, about a couple hundred thousand different groups and communities, whether it's hiking groups or, or, or tech groups or learning a programming language or learning a, a language to speak. Uh, we have lots of different opportunities for people to kind of learn, better themselves, meet interesting and amazing people. So that's what, that's what Meetup is. In terms of the process for determining whether or not to work at Meetup, I guess I could start with that one because that's, and we could work chronologically if you'd like to. Um, the mission, as one moves on and grows in one's career, feeling that you're working for the noble cause and that mission, for me at least, continue to grow over time. In early days, I felt like I was more about me and, and my skill set and my exposure and my growth and my promotion and my learning, me, me, me. And as time went on, you start realizing I, you, you work so hard and you spend so much time. I want to work on something that's actually meaningful. So Meetup to me was one of those meaningful companies I could possibly work for because I believe so deeply in relationships and connections and how great things happen when you meet other people and, and how the absence of community or the loneliness epidemic that exists out there is just so terrifying. So I knew that from a North Star perspective, I was excited. And we work at the time, this is 2019, was this crazy rising star with a $47 billion valuation. I was like, oh my God, this is a, I get the wins of both. I get like this you know, company that's going to go public. I get options for that big company that's very exciting, potentially financially. And also I have this really meaningful type opportunity to be able to do. And then the interview process started and you start seeing some dysfunctionality. I ended up having 27 different interviews at Meetup. I ended up having, you know, crazy experiences and in, in, in being interviewed by Adam Newman and WeWork and the WeWork team and the Meetup founder who was stepping aside after, after he ran the company, the sole person who ran the, ran the company for 16 years prior. And, you know, I always say to people that dating is a good way to understand how marriage is going to be and interviewing is a great way to understand how the culture of the company is going to be. It actually, because the interview process was such a crazy roller coaster of, of, of fits and starts and, and changes, that ended up being exactly what being a WeWork kind of uh, executive for as a parent company was for me as well. So it was a good learning. And throughout that journey, you, as you alluded to, you got to interact with quite a few big personalities, for lack of a better word. And the ones that come to mind in reading the book, obviously Adam Newman, um, another one, at least in my world, is Fred Wilson, the famed and very respected venture capitalist, and then also yep. uh, Bill Ackman. I would love to maybe uh, have you maybe talk a little bit about some of these experiences. I mean, these are you know, pretty well-respected and revered and well-known uh, individuals. Could you share a little bit more about what, what it was like to tango and, and engage with a few of those? Okay, we tangoed and cha-cha-cha. There we go. <laughs> So Fred Wilson. So Fred Wilson is the um, leader, I believe, or at least the founder of Union Square Ventures, one of the most esteemed, well-respected venture capital firms in the New York metro area, certainly. Um, and they have offices across the country, but they're based in New York. He actually was on the board of Meetup 
crier. And he knew Meetup for that reason because he had familiarity after years of kind of being on the board. I had heard that he may be interested in acquiring the company. And because he's so famous and because his writing and his blog is so exceptional, I was so excited and frankly, even nervous to meet him for the first time. So I met with him and he said something super interesting to me, which is he already knows Meetup. He knows what the potential is. The only thing that he cares about, the only thing is basically me as the CEO. It's, I want to get to know you. I am going to do due diligence on you because if I acquire this company, if we invest in this company, I'm investing behind you as the CEO. That's start and that's finish. It ended up, I got all these people from like, you know, a decade ago, five years ago, long time ago, earlier in my career, reaching out to me and be like, I just spoke to Fred Wilson and he was checking up on you. I just spoke to Fred Wilson. He was the amount of back channeling that he did is so beyond impressive. And I think if you think if, if a person, a luminary like Fred Wilson is doing that kind of due diligence back channeling, like it's, we should be doing that kind of due diligence back channeling ourselves on any kind of hires or any companies that we're thinking of working on. So I was blown away impressed. At the end, he basically said, David, you're a controversial guy. People love you. So many people love working for you and working with you. But you know what? There's a few number of people that I spoke to that really don't like you and that you, you, you just, you know, you, 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 you let go at some point uh, or they disagree with how you decide to make some, some decisions, et cetera. And he said, you know what? I'm going to need a pass. You're too polarizing as a potential leader. And I share that because it's honest and it's transparent and you know, I was disappointed with it. And that was my experience with Fred Wilson. And after that, we had some back and forth emails and, and some communications. And I would certainly have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I think learning from mistakes or learning from failures or learning from negative experiences is incredibly important. So I share that story. What was it like to hear that feedback, right? In terms of, I'm sure you weren't surprised or weren't disappointed to hear that some people loved loved working for you but to hear the other side of that what did that take you was that surprising to you or, or how did that how did you process that no i think here, here's the reality when you're a ceo of a company you make a lot a lot of decisions you're making constantly making decisions and you're also creating a culture of a company and it's impossible for a company culture to be a perfect fit for all employees just that it's that simple. Some employees in the culture that I had created, you know, previously when I was CEO of Investopedia, um, loved the informality, the relay races that we would do, all these other fun games that we would do all the time. And some of them just shook their heads and be like, what the heck is this guy, this person doing? And it, it kind of turned them off a little bit. I just think you can't have success without um, challenges at the time. People are complex. And as much as I really do endeavor to create an inclusive environment, everyone feels comfortable. If you create an environment where everyone feels comfortable at all times, 100% of people, no matter what their personality, you don't really have a culture. You don't have anything. So you have to appreciate that um, it's okay to create an environment as long as everything's ethical and high integrity where certain people may not feel it's necessarily the right fit for them, that should never be based on color or gender or any other types of those stereotypes ever. But it's okay for people to say it isn't the right place for me. So I wasn't surprised. 
I was fortunate for just the honesty and transparency. And I, um, I took it as a positive experience and positive learning overall. So uh, I want to latch on to that last piece when you talked about learning. And one of the that was one of the themes that I also saw come up in the book. And I think a good illustration of this was maybe when you had to go try to find a buyer and you went into the venture capital and private equity world. I know you had mentioned you had, you had known a few VCs and a few maybe PE folks, but this really was a new uncharted experience for you. So can you talk about that process and, and maybe what you learned from it? Okay, sure. So first of all, I was a corporate guy. I've been a corporate person my whole life, manager, director, senior, vice president, senior vice president, a president of Seeking Alpha. I was never, I never worked in venture capital or private equity. I have friends that worked in it, but I never actually have like deep relationships in, in that world. So when, when I first got a call from the president of WeWork, Artie Minson, and he said, David, we're going to sell Meetup. I'm like, ugh. And then, and then he said, but you could try to find a buyer. So I said, okay, I don't know anyone. Who am I going to go to? Uh, I mean, I have friends from business school and from other places that work in, in PE and, and VC. At, but, but, but then I started like putting a list together. I was like, whoa, I have a lot of people. And then what I did is I reached out to all the senior people that I did know. And I asked for introductions. And I ended up reaching out to dozens, maybe 50 to 100 venture capital, private equity, or other kind of companies that could potentially acquire a meetup. Because I felt like I want to take ownership of this. I don't want to be, I don't, I, I, I want to have agency. I don't want other people to decide my fate. I want to decide the fate, um, the fate myself. So we did that. I had lots of different conversations. I learned a lot. And I'll, I'll go through a couple of learnings. One is that I tried my typical approach was this broad-based approach, talking to lots of different people. And I built great relationships from that. And actually, some of them have resulted in me even being on the boards of some of their portfolio companies. So that's good. But I had so many relationships with discussions with companies that the acquiring media was just completely not in their charter. It, 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 they were looking for a potential investment that was way earlier stage than Meetup or more profitable than Meetup or faster growing than Meetup. So I didn't appreciate the fact that the strategies for each of these VC and PE firms are pretty well laid out and it's very hard for them to deviate from the actual strategy that they have. Now, what ended up that the company that acquired us, Kevin Ryan, who I know from my DoubleClick days, I brought in and Alicorp, their strategy is completely different than acquiring a meetup but they were just opportunistic. And unlike Fred Wilson, they said, D Kevin said, David, I know you. I trust you. I'm acquiring Meetup because you're the person who's leading the company. And even though it doesn't fall on the charter, let's go for it. So, so I think what it came down to for me in terms of learnings was, number one, so much has to do with past relationships that you may have in order to potentially turn something into a big opportunity. Number two, Understand the charters of each of the different companies you're thinking of, go, of, of approaching, which I talked about already. Number three, see which, um, no, sorry for a second. I'm, you edit this stuff out, right? Number three is it sharpened my knowledge of Meetup, just going through the process of talking to 20, 30, 40, 50 potential suitors. As CEO, it's easy to not get, have deep knowledge about like the details and the guts 
of a company, not to have every metric at your fingertips because you have other people in the organization that know those metrics. But by going through the process of trying to sell the company, I actually became a much more effective CEO because I learned a lot more. And all those conversations that I had with smart people provided all this incredible advice they ended up taking and then actually shifting some meetup strategies because of those conversations that I had during the process. So again, it's just a perfect example where meeting people, talking to people, building relationships ends up having this unintended consequence. And one of those unintended consequences was getting really smart strategic advice from venture capital and PE partners who have seen dozens of companies similar to Meetup and and suggested actions that they thought I should be taking. So very, very valuable. It sounds like a, a lot of learnings, both that are applicable in the short term, as well as things that would later to lead to other opportunities down the road. And I think what I took away from that lesson, at least, is that when you undertake something like, like that, you can't always see the opportunities that are going to come. But if you work in an intentional way where you're surrounded by these conversations with really smart, well-connected, and well-resourced people, if you do it the right way and you, you, you do it in a way that shows your reputation and integrity in a good way, there's going to be some, some positive externalities, including in, in the eventual obvious exit and sale. Uh, as well as other things that I think happened for you in terms of, as you mentioned, being able to eventually sit on some of the boards of these companies and also just furthering your own learning of of of, of the process, which had both short-term and long-term benefits as well. Yep. Focus on the process, not on the outcome. Too often the people focus on the outcome, focus on the process. So one of the themes in the book and also a theme of Meetup and what always has been a theme of Meetup is this idea around community in terms of building community, strengthening community, bringing communities together. I would love to, I would also add, add, it sounds like that is also a theme that's relevant in your own in your own life, just reading some of the personal kind of stories that you shared about yourself and in the book. I would love to know from you, why is community so important? And what role do you really see it playing in the lives of employees and professionals in the workplace? Yeah, I think... Um... One of the many challenges around the pandemic has been the loss of community in the workplace. It's, it's a very different experience to be working from home on Zoom and trying to build relationships with colleagues than when you were in the office together. And I think that one of the reasons for the great resignation actually is because people feel so much less connected to their companies and to their offices because they're working outside of that. So talking about community, to me, one of the most dangerous things that exists in this world, really, and this is not hyperbole, is the loneliness epidemic. 46% of people regularly feel lonely. And among people who are most of your audience, I imagine, millennials, Gen Zers, over 62% of people regularly feel lonely. That's scary. The impact of that loneliness, whether it's depression, whether it's, God forbid, suicide in the extreme, is terrifying. Community is the antidote to loneliness, and meetup is the antidote to loneliness. 25% of people don't even have one trusted confidant, one that they could go to, a mother, a father, a sibling, a friend, to help them in time of need. And, and it's just this, the numbers are scary, and they've gotten even worse during the pandemic. So to me, community is this group of people 
that's not going to judge you, that's there to support you, that's there to listen, that's there to help, and that you can be there to strengthen yourself in helping others. And it's that irrational, you could almost say, although it's very rational because it goes back down all the way to caveman, caveman times when people needed community in order to survive. Hunters and gatherers, they need a community to survive. And it's inbred in our DNAs. But the irrationality of, of just constantly looking to help other people in your community is what creates one of the greatest life experiences. So when people are part of an MBA class and, and the community that's forged from that, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, they're still looking to help they can help each other out. And that's like something powerful that they've been able to build. So Meetup is all about curing the loneliness epidemic and helping to build community. And, and that's why it's just so, so special for me. I think back to my own experience when I started in my first job out of undergrad in being in consulting. And I worked at a big, a big shop. But one of my favorite parts was that every Friday when we would all fly back from or every Thursday on Friday, we would go into the office and we'd all kind of fly back from our client sites. And just having another group of analysts who were all kind of in the same boat, fresh out of college, who didn't know uh, what we were doing, but we had safety in being able to have each other and to ask each other questions and uh, to share our own experiences and also to learn with and, and from each other. And that was one of my most meaningful experiences in, in having that community. And then the other thing that I, I think about maybe about a year or two ago, uh, Barack Obama, uh, President, former President Barack Obama did a podcast where he was talking just about growing up and just how community was so central to his own life. And he was remembering and reminiscing upon how when he was growing up, I believe that his family couldn't take care of him at one point in time during the week. And so what he used to do during that time in the week was one of his friends who lived across town, he would go and stay with them for like two nights out of the week. And it wasn't weird. It was just, that was what community was. And it just was just central to the fabric of growing up back in the 60s and 70s that if you if your parents couldn't take care of you and you needed a hand, someone was going to help you do that. And I think there are so many amazing things that we have with community today, particularly with the result of technology and what it's been able to do throughout COVID. But at the same time, I think there are some elements that maybe we've lost. And I think what you're articulating was is in that story of Barack's story, or even in my story of starting out of undergrad and having those people that you have near you. And for me, at least, it always has spoken to the fact that none of us live in a world by ourselves. We're always in relation to others. And we, to your point, like we, we crave that. It's just in our DNA. Well said. Well said. I love the fact that you've been able to have that deep community. The Barack Obama example is great. And the reality is, is that the, wor the infrastructures that used to exist yeah. around community sure. are just so broken. Number, I'm not right. saying that people need to be religious or anything like that. That's not, no, not important. Sure. But people used to go to church and synagogue and mosque sure. and other things. And these communal yeah. infrastructures, you know, really help them. Now, there's other things that exist today that are taking the place of that um, for many people. And that's great. It's great. Sure. But find a path, find a way to be able to part of that. And the you know, famous Robert Putnam book, Bowling Alone, and, and the study around how more people are bowling, but everyone's bowling alone. They're not like bowling in teams and in a community anymore. It's just, it's sad. And, and it's our jobs to come back and, and, and bring that back. So you've, throughout your time leading Meetup, you've been able to meet plenty of Meetup organizers and seen many communities. Could you maybe share a fun example of one or two that really stand out to you as 
people who are out there or communities that are out there that are, are, are really trying to build this connection and community together. Okay, great. Okay, I got all of, uh, 10, 15, 30 stories. But I'm sure, I'm sure. So one is I, pre-pandemic, I would go to East City and I'm actually starting that up very shortly again. And I would meet with all the organizers in the city. I remember going to San Mateo for a meeting with organizers and an organizer came up to me beforehand and he said, I have to tell you a story. I'm like, great, love stories. So his story was that he said, I'm an organizer of two different groups. I'm an organizer of a group that's a bowling group. We've talked about bowling before, so maybe that's why I thought of this. And I'm also an organizer, and I did that to meet people, meet friends. And I'm also an organizer of a networking group to find a job. It ended up that I got two of my jobs from my bowling group. And I ended up that the networking thing, I ended up meeting my best friend. And what's beautiful about that in my mind around community is kind of the overlapping and the blending of the personal and the professional. You know, too many times people separate those lives out and they say, this is my professional life. This is my work life. I have to act in a certain way. No, be yourself. This is my fun life. I'm going to act in this way. I'm not going to act in... But in reality, when you have a community, these serendipitous things end up actually happening to you and exposures end up happening that are totally different than what you had originally anticipated. So that's kind of one nice story that I like. A second story that I will share is uh, a, a fellow named Omar Acosta, who is an introvert, as many people are. And, um, and he couldn't find his community. He would play seven, eight, ten hours of video games kind of every day. And his brother called him up and he said, hey, you know, there's this thing called Meetup. And if you go to a meetup, you might meet some people and just kind of get off the couch and start doing other things. So he went to, very tentatively went to his first group, went, went to a meeting and they were, I think they were, they were doing some outdoor activity, hiking. And they went to another one, another one and went to like three or four. And then, the, and then the organizer said, Hey, I'm moving to another city. Can you become a meetup organizer? He's like, Whoa, I'm like totally introverted. Like I'm not a leader. That's not for me. He ended up becoming a meetup organizer. The group has had in 10 years, over a thousand events. And like close to 10 marriages have even come out of his group. Not, it's not a singles group. It just happened because people are meeting each other and amazing things happen when people get together in person in particular. And when you can't do it in person, then at the very least, you know, through, through online. Those are two really great and lovely examples. And what uh, that's so amazing that so many different couples have just come out of that accidentally. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me, uh, David, just about the book one of the words I, I wrote down after reading through it, I think you used it quite a bit, was the word was kind. I just saw that word kind of come up over and over and over again. I don't really know what to make of this, but but do something with this. Is, is this a theme in your life? Is, is this, is this it, it, it strikes me as something that's important to you or, or something that is a value to you, just by given how many times I saw the word kind of come up. But yeah, tell me a little bit more about what that means to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not about the outcome. It's about how you do get things done, ultimately. Yeah. And I yeah. think also people tend to mistake being kind and being nice. The goal is not to be nice. The goal is to be kind. There's a big difference. For example, it's not nice, potentially, to make someone feel bad because of the fact that you're giving them critical feedback. That's not nice. It makes them feel bad. But is it kind? Is the kindest thing that you could do at times to... to enable someone to be more successful in their current job and future jobs by giving them critical feedback? Absolutely. Firing someone is not nice. It doesn't feel good. 
but sometimes letting someone go might be the kindest thing that you could actually do to enable them to move on in their career to do the next right thing. And it's about understanding that the goal isn't to avoid making people feel bad. The goal is to help people out, even if at the time they're actually upset or angry at you for doing so. And to me, that's the ultimate kindness that you could provide. And, and people see through things. So, and, and you have a long reputation. And if you are able, and you are, to make smart business decisions and understand that the best way to do it is to be kind in the process, you will end up a much more successful leader and have a far more successful career than if you, you know, do the take no prisoners, you know, whatever type approach that, that maybe other people, you know, might espouse. I think that's a great delineation between being kind and being nice. Before we close out here, I wanted to ask you, what drove you to write this book? And what do you hope readers really take away from it in terms of how they think about how they approach their own lives and their own careers? Thank you. Drove me to write the book was that, so I teach at Columbia, as you know, on the side, and I love helping others to learn from my personal experiences and my personal mistakes and failures. And when you teach in a classroom, you have 70 students that you could impact in a very significant way. And that's wonderful, but it's a small number of people. A book can have an impact, not as great an impact as having a professor, but impact, smaller impact, but for many, many, many more people. It's like a T. You want like the top part of the T and the long part of the T. Teaching is like that long part of the T and the, and the, and the, and the horizontal of the T is writing a book. So I had written and published articles in Harvard Business Review and Business Insider and a bunch of other places. And I really enjoyed that because I got people, I, I took very counterintuitive um, approaches to management philosophy that a lot of people didn't necessarily espouse. And I'd always wanted to write a book, but I never had like, I didn't want it to be a textbook, like a boring textbook where, where it's just like, here are the five different this is and the seven different that platforms. And it's kind of boring. But when the entire experience happened with WeWork and living through that and the sale process, which was just such a crazy roller coaster experience, I just like during the, and the pandemic then hit and we had to run a company meetup during a pandemic and you couldn't meet up in person. I just burst a book basically in one month. I just wrote like 70,000 words and just got up early and just kept writing and writing and writing. And, you know, obviously good at a job by HarperCollins. And what really drove me more than anything is honestly, it's just trying to help as many people as possible from my experiences. I think that there are a lot of people who are in leadership and management positions, and they oftentimes feel ill-equipped to make the, have the right anchors for decision-making and anchors like be confident be kind, be surprised only about being surprised and other anchors as part of a decision framework. My hope is that it could help many people to avoid some of the mistakes that I made and hopefully be more effective managers, leaders. And the reason why I care about that so much, and I'll end with this, is the butterfly effect. When someone is a great manager and could help a person out in their career, then that person goes back to their spouse or significant other and says, oh my gosh, there's such a better place. They're a better parent. They're a better sibling. They're a better child because of the positive experience that they had. So by helping people in their jobs, by helping people's work lives become better, you're helping all those people that they come in contact with afterwards because of that butterfly effect. And who the heck doesn't want to make the world a better place? I think that's a great 
a great example and great way to end this. But before I do, I want to just tie that in really quickly. It reminds me a little bit of Clayton Christensen, the famed Harvard Business School professor and author of Disruptive Innovation. And in one of his books, he, he writes about how he believes that management is one of the most noblest professions. And he recalls the story of when he was a manager of going through this reflection exercise for one of his direct reports and thinking about what would happen if she had a great day. At the end of the day, she would go home, be able to be with her family, be really excited, feel really empowered, able to be there for dinner, to hear what her kids were doing, to be a good spouse, be a good partner. And then he imagined what would happen if he was managing her and he was putting her under a lot of stress. And what would happen in that situation? How would she go home? How would she show up for her family? How would she show up for those who around her who, who really cared about her? And it really stuck with him in terms of his own thoughts on management, in terms of being a profession that could have the power to have that butterfly effect, right? In terms of uh, the positive of that is you can be in a place where you do have the ability to shape and help people become better for the communities that they serve, whether that community is their family or, or, or elsewhere. But also, unfortunately, that it also works the other way in terms of if you are not doing it in a great way or in a way that you're being mindful of others, it has the ability to really hinder people. And it sounds like there's some parallels, I think, in terms of your own experiences with, with some of the lessons from, from Christensen's book. Well, Al, with your NBA Insider podcast, you're also clearly oh, having thank a you. positive impact on so many people to become more successful at what they do. So really kudos to you as well. Thank you for that. David Siegel, the CEO of Meetup, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to learn more about you or they want to buy uh, Decide and Cocker, where can they find you and where can they go? Okay. So you could go to uh, our website, decideandconquerbook.com. You can go to Amazon. I don't know if you've ever heard of that place or Barnes & Noble or any of the other place where books are sold and you got to pick that up too. Feel free to send me a LinkedIn. Love linking it with people um, who are interested in similar type topics. And also, if you're interested in Meetup, download the app, find a group to join, go to an event, meet some interesting community. Hopefully positive things will come from that too. Hi, everyone. LD here, and thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.